0: Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I had to record. The Bayma podcast has nothing on the CCF sermons podcast. That's right. That's right. I had to record for, for that. Hey everybody! Welcome to CCF. The we're getting close, real close to the end. It's it's upon us. Um, last week, Marty Anthony Solomy, Sol- Solomy? Solomon—that's <laughs> close to a word that I don't want to say out loud. Last week, Marty Anthony Solomon was here. Uh, who was here last week to listen to Marty? Um, uh, he walked us through. I, I love it when Marty actually comes here because he feels slightly intimidated by you all. It's like the one place he goes, the one campus ministry he goes to where he's like, oh, Truman students always make me just nervous because you guys are just so smart, uh, wicked smart. You don't let him get away with anything, um, all the things that he normally tries to get away with. So it was great having him. Uh, he, he walked us through uh, step by step. The process of confession and repentance from a Jewish perspective. Uh, anybody? Just anybody? Remember any of the steps? Put you on a quiz without reading your notes. Kool Aid? It's okay. You can use your notes. It's open note. <laughs> Polly, a- what's the number? Let's see if we can go in order. Number one. Acknowledge the wrongdoing. That's step one. Step two. Identify how it negatively impacted others. Number three. (laughs) Are you are you doing this? He's. Oh, okay. Well, this would be inappropriate though. Like, make amends and reparations. Number three. (laughs) Number four. Number four. Anybody? Clarify Clarify the steps that you're going to take to better yourself and not repeat. Those actions. And number five, change the behavior. Let's Now we can snap. Yeah. Um, I think it was a valuable lesson for us. I think it has a lot to say um, to wrongdoers, you and me, others in our culture, uh, that has a way of trying to get by with just quick apologies. Okay, I said I'm sorry. Let's sweep it under the rug. Let's move on so that I can try to maintain some face and definitely not have to lose any Real position or status because of the wrong I've done, so let's just get over it already. Um, it has a lot to say to those of us who have been wronged ourselves about what we might or maybe should be able to expect from people who have uh, wronged us. Um, but then the question comes up on the other side, and it did come up last week at sermon discussion and another place or two. Uh, what about when you're the one wronged? What about. Forgiveness. What do do we do? How do we respond to those who confess and repent? And maybe uh, even harder, what do we do when someone doesn't confess and repent? What do we do when people say they're sorry? What do we do when people don't say they're sorry? And so to that end, I actually am going to, Marty has put me in a position that I've never actually been in at CCF before. I worked here for 13 years. I have hundreds of thousands of words written down. From sermons, And never once have I just wholesale, like, repeated a sermon. But I'm going to reprise one for the first time from two and a half years ago. Uh, from the spring of 2019, we did a series on the parables. It was one of my favorite series ever. Um, the only ones here who might have heard it before then are seniors and older. Uh, did anybody hear it the first time that I did it? Well, since you have heard it before, hopefully you'll be able to forgive me uh, for... Giving it again. You can leave. That's fine. The door's right there. Uh, so here we go. This is forgiveness redux, or still the most offensive F bomb, or crucifixionless resurrections are lifelong prison sentences, or syntactic ambiguity yields some truth. Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? We know this question it's a familiar question in every sense of the word. Uh, It's familiar because it's from a well-known passage. We've heard this before. Uh, I I think probably some of you, even without me saying it, can recall Jesus' answer to Peter. Um, It's familiar because we are well acquainted with the experiences that give rise to this question, experiences of being hurt and being hurt over and again. So, So we don't Need any special cultural Bible context information to get what Peter is asking here? Uh, this could just as easily be our question H- How many times do I have to forgive this person who has hurt me? And probably for many or even all of us, this has been our question at some point or another. We know it from the inside out. Being sinned against, it's not new. Being offended, being wounded. Uh, Being wronged by somebody else, I would imagine, still goes much the same way today as it did 2,000 years ago. We have the same vices. We open up the same wounds in one another with our sins, our bitter words, and our manipulative actions, and our raging tempers, and our disregard, and our neglect, and our abuse. The damage coming from that is probably similar. The sting, the pain that makes us ask... How much more of this do I have to take? And finally, this question is familiar because it's it's literally, in this case, about family. When Peter says, my brother, uh, it's as likely as anything that he means his actual brother, Andrew. And And it makes sense, right? I mean, aren't the ones who are closest to us precisely the ones who are able to hurt us again and again, even seven times over, families are close and they can hurt. Uh, my own family is an example, as I've discussed before, even just a few weeks ago. There's a lot of pain in my past from a dad who, and again, I want to be fair and I want to be honest, uh, who just could like, and he did just repeatedly like level little hearts with just raging, cutting words. And you couple that with a, a seemingly absolute incapability to repent or to say I'm sorry, and what you get is a recipe for a family that just doesn't hold together. And so as I I said before, there are some in my family who haven't talked to my dad in many years and may never speak to him ever again, as far as I know. Uh, And and again, I want to be honest, and and I also want to be fair, and I want to say things have changed between me and him, and things can get better, and also, I can understand where they're coming from. Like, when is enough Enough. How many times do we have to forgive, especially when they don't ask and it seems like they don't even care? In other words, uh, we join with that long held biblical voice How long, O oh Lord? How long do we have to put up with this? And if I do keep on forgiving, what does that even actually mean? What does that mean for them? What does it mean for me? And before we take a a wander through Jesus' answer and through the parable that he gives to Peter, uh, let me just first acknowledge a couple of things out loud for us. And the first thing is that talking about forgiveness, uh, not just forgiveness as a concept, but forgiveness as like a powerful phenomenon that changes relational realities between people, talking about forgiveness like that is hard. And it's hard because it is deeply personal and it is necessarily about things that are uh, at least to some degree painful. To many different degrees actually, we experience pain, uh, some mild things and some unbearable things. And that's part of the added difficulty of talking about forgiveness in a room with a bunch of people. Because when I say forgive, over here is one person who is thinking of their roommates who left the dishes undone yet again. But then over there is somebody thinking of their father who abused them. And forgiveness is somehow running through both of their minds about those different situations. And so one is kind of bored by what I'm saying, like, eh. And another is intensely skeptical, maybe even outraged that I would bring it up. You with me? And so the other thing that I want to acknowledge then uh, is that to someone who has been really severely wounded, forgiveness for their offender, me suggesting that, Jesus suggesting that, that is an offensive word. I get it. Forgiveness is one of the harder Christian demands to grapple with. And again, not as, not as a concept. It's, it's not hard to grapple with forgiveness in like the way that it's hard to grapple with the doctrine of the Trinity. It's, it's, it's more like grappling like, like a boxing match uh, it, it keeps you in the ring with your opponent. Uh, it hurts. may well bring you to your knees. And the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is going to depict here, uh, it, it's the thing in Christendom that is maybe most alien and also just most insane to the world. Hospitality, generosity, peace. Like, that's, that's praiseworthy in the eyes of the world. We can be about that. But true forgiveness for your worst enemy, is scandalous. And and it seems that often uh, in the eyes of the world, to forgive like a deep wrongdoing is not only something that doesn't have to be done, it's something that, that shouldn't be done. How many times before I show them the door? Once, the world says... Don't put yourself in that position again. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Okay, here is some context. Uh, There was already discussion by the rabbis on this question. Uh, And in Jesus' day, and actually before Jesus' day, they discussed this kind of thing. And they'd actually already decided on this question. They'd given a ruling Uh, based on a refrain from the book of Amos that says it's one of those weird like I don't know where the punctuation should go in this for three transgressions and then we have a comma and for four I will not revoke the punishment there it is for three transgressions and for four I will not revoke the punishment so reading the Bible that way the teachers gave this verdict they said three times how many times forgive your brother three times then you're off the hook Three times, then actually you don't forgive them anymore. Pretty nice, actually, if it worked that way. So, believe it or not, then, for Peter to ask this question of Jesus and then to lead with his own answer as many as seven times, he's almost like, Did you see what I did there, Jesus? That's a lot. That's pretty good. A- and that actually, according to the ruling, is that's a very generous. Answer Twice as much, more than twice as much as what the other teachers said. Then Jesus did what Jesus does. And he cuts against the grain of all of those, like uh, three, seven, whatever. And he shows that no matter how skillfully everyone, Peter, the ra- like you're playing the wrong game. And so what's his answer? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but... 77 times. It sounds like he actually is playing the same game. So let me clarify something. This is not quantitative. This is not the number 77. This is not a multiplication problem. 70 times 7 because we get, oh, 490. Jesus is not just outdoing Peter and the other rabbis at their own game by just giving them a number that's, like, way bigger Like, can you imagine, by the way, uh, someone being wronged 490 times because I can? I live in a house with three young boys, and they commit the same sins against each other 10 times a day, and so 49 days, and we're there, 49 days of Leanne and I forcing them to say, I'm sorry for hitting you, and then forcing the other one to say, I forgive you, 49 days of that, and then we run out of runway, and then even by Jesus' standard here, like, the boys are just permitted to descend into the Hunger Games, and they definitely would, trust me. Like, they keep journals. And I can imagine Jack, his little journal open, just, like, making tallies. 489. 490. 491! And then he goes and he gets his gun... Or is Bo, Katniss? (laughs) So, okay, let's get it straight then. This is not a simple number. It's not a math problem. You know what it is? It's a Bible quote, folks. Jesus is quoting the scripture. Do anybody know where it's from? People who've heard the sermon before, you should know where it's from. It's from the Bible. (laughs) Who said that? Props to you. That was an excellent answer. She'll be here all week. (laughs) Wouldn't it be fitting if, to a question from a brother, Peter, in a fight with his brother, Andrew, wouldn't it be really fitting if Jesus quoted from the story of Cain and Abel? Oh, almost like he knows what he's doing. Okay, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel. We know this. Yes, this is not a big spoiler for you. And then Cain freaks out because he's terrified that somebody is going to come and kill him. And so God puts this weird mark on him, and God says, anybody who tries to mess with Cain, here's what's going to happen. On that person, is vengeance going to be taken sevenfold? Oh, there's that number. Sevenfold vengeance. Avenge sevenfold is an old, like, hardcore band. Okay. So (coughs) Cain lives. Cain has kids. Uh, And then at the end of Genesis 4, we get to read about Cain's family, and there's a genealogy. The genealogy is going on, like genealogies do, and and so-and-so, we got so-and-so, we got so-and-so. Until the flow of it all gets interrupted with this amazing episode with somebody speaking about themselves in the third person. Do you know what this is called? There's a word for this, by the way. Yeah, an iliast is a person who speaks about themselves in the third person. Like, Steve Holt! So, <laughs> thank you, if you got that reference. There's this guy named Lamech at the very end of the Cain line. A- and so we're doing the genealogy, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and, so and, so and then we get this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man For wounding me. A young man or a boy. For striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold. Then Lamex is 77 fold. Oh. There's the Jesus quote. Wives listen up. I killed a boy because he slapped me in the face. I have a young boy. And man sometimes I I get where he's coming from. (laughs) But it's like. Lamech is like, Cain is weak. Lamech is awesome. Vengeance 77-fold. Steve Holt. So, So in other words, this is what Lamech is about. Lamech is about inflicting extreme retribution for the smallest of offenses. So when Jesus is asked a question about how many times someone has to forgive their brother before, presumably moving on to more vengeful courses of action. And then Jesus replies by referencing a story about a brother murdering a brother, and he quotes 77-fold, but in the other direction, towards forgiveness. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Peter, you know how that story goes. You know how the world goes you know how it is when getting even, getting your reparations. You know how it goes when that's your first priority because it's never getting even. Things get blown out of proportion, and the cycle never ends. And so in the world of Lamech, it's like absurd revenge for the smallest of infractions, but in my kingdom, Peter, in this kingdom, It's like this equal but opposite absurd forgiveness for the biggest violations. Are you with me? And so I'm like, cool. That answers it, Peter. You got your question answered. You know how many times. You know that it's not just about times, and it's about this is the way of the kingdom. So it's been answered in a pretty profound, awesome way. Jesus is a really good teacher like that. But then Jesus is like, hang on a second. I'm not done yet. And then he tells this story. And he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is anybody just initially terrified by that end? A little bit uncomfortable? Okay, we'll get to it. First, let's talk talents. Let's talk money because this parable has a lot of that in it. So a denarius is a coin, okay, in the Roman world. And it's the wage that you get for a day of labor, okay, one day of labor, one denarius. So 100 denarii is 100 days of labor, about three months, a little more. Then we get talents. And a talent is actually a measurement of weight. It's a measurement of weight for precious metals. And when you convert, it's like a talent is like 60 to 90 pounds, okay? And a talent of weight, of denarii, equals about 6,000. Denarii, that's how much it costs for one talent. So, if you're keeping track, at one denarius a day, if you never spent anything and saved it all, after 16 years, five months, and five days, you could have your very own talent. One. What was the first servant's debt? How many talents? A lot. Was it more than one? More than 16 years? Was it more than hundred? Was it more than 1,000? Was it more than 10,000? Shock you're too smart. It was not. It was 10,000 talents exactly. Do the math. That is 60 million denarii, 60 million days of working. So to do the math for you, that is 164,000 years of labor. Even in old Bible times, they didn't get close to that, right? 164,000 years. And so just to recap our two servants' debts, we've got the one guy who owes 100 denarii about three months, and we've got the other guy who owes 60 million or about 164,000 years worth of labor. You should be laughing. This is absurd. Okay, can we have a discussion for a second? What are some crazy things about this story? That's Peter, by the way, and Jesus is the one on the right I don't know. It is. But Peter, I said this last time. Peter's jacked, dude. Look at his freaking traps. He's huge. <laughs> anyway. We're just going to leave that there. So now that you know what that money, what kind of figures Jesus is actually dealing with, what are some crazy things about this story as you recall it? Just just tell me. What's crazy about this story? What doesn't make any sense? What doesn't compute? The master? What about the master? The master for giving that much. I don't know, are there any business and econ people in here? Yeah? So if you have somebody who owes you 164,000 years worth of labor, the wages for that, and you decided to just go ahead and, like, take that one off the books, you're not going to stay in business very long, right? Like, what's going to happen to your whole kingdom? The economy is going to, pfft, no more kingdom, right? That's what this king is willing to do. Like, we'll just bankrupt everything, make us destitute, No big deal. Okay, any other crazy things about this? Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I never thought about that before, right? Even if he gets what he wants from the other guy, that's nothing, that's not gonna do anything. If it's a desperate plea to like pay it all back. Okay, yeah? Yeah, also bad business decision on the king's part, right? How do you let somebody rack up that much debt? That's dumb. (laughs) It is dumb. What does the servant say to the king when the king's like, time to pay up? He says, have patience with me, and what? I'll pay it back. back. (laughs) Really? Do you think the king is like, yeah, maybe you will. (laughs) So then those things make that other thing The the last, the the really absurd thing, the stupid, the laughable, the offensive thing about it, that much more so, that this guy with all of those figures being taken off of his plate, he goes to the other one and he starts choking him out. And he's like, pay me what you owe me. Like, really? Come on, because what do you think about that guy? It's like, what kind of a monster would do that? Like, you're totally out of touch with what just happened to you. Now you're choking this other guy out for like a month's rent. And Jesus is like, I know, right? But then Jesus says also to Peter, he doesn't say this, but I think he's saying it to Peter and to us, who do you think this is about? Who's the first servant? Who is the heartless monster? Me. And we like that in the first part when he gets forgiven, right? We come into contact with the grace But then also, if we're that servant there, we're also in the second laughable, ludicrous, shocking part. We're also the ones going around choking out our fellow servants, saying, pay what you owe. And this is what Peter failed to see, and this is why Jesus doesn't let it end with the sevenfold thing. When Peter is asking for a limit to forgiveness, he sees perfectly well the situation of his brother, of Andrew, of that guy, but he fails to see the truth about himself. And that's why this parable is necessary here for Peter and for us, because Peter, he, he almost thinks that like, well, I'm just asking like uh, he almost has this like self-righteous long suffering about him. Like, oh, Jesus, I've been hurt so many times. And so he thinks he's asking out of that. But Jesus, sees underneath that. There's like this growing bitterness, this springing up from a failure to see himself as he is. I also have to say I have more problems with this parable. The whole point of this parable, so often, as we're told, is to provide some perspective about ourselves, right? You set up a contrast between the debt that you owe God, 164,000 years, you terrible sinner, and then the debt that other people owe you, right? You put those next to each other, and it's like, oh, you're so mad at your brother, for wronging you, but, but he's, what he did is like nothing compared to what you've done to God, so you need to get over it. But, but my question and my problem is, what about when my fellow servant owes me more than three months' wages? Do you know what I'm saying? What about when it feels to me as though their debt isn't a 100 but a 100,000 denarii? The principle laid out in the parable is I should forgive because the debt I owe God is unfathomably great, and he has forgiven me, and, and yeah but but what about when the reality is that that sin against me just seems impossible to recoup because here's the thing about sin about wounding about wronging is that it creates a kind of debt it creates a deficit somebody takes something from you when they wrong you and that debt doesn't just get wiped away it doesn't just disappear It has to go somewhere. Either it gets thrust back upon the one who hurt you, the one who owes it, and they have to come up with a way to pay, so it's like, Dad, he took my sense of confidence, he took my security, he took my joy, he took my freedom, and now he's gonna have to have a way to give that back to me, and here are the conditions. You gotta do these things, you gotta say these words, you gotta mean them in this way, or else the one who who is owed, the one who's hurt the victim, They have to just absorb it and and just take the loss, but it never really can just vanish. And so, what about when the debt against me, the debt owed to me, is just too large for me to be able to absorb without going completely bankrupt? What about abuse? What about genocide? What about a situation where even if the perpetrator did everything right toward me for the rest of their life, and even if they gave me everything they had and they paid me $100 million, even, even then there are some losses that cannot ever be fully repaid. The lost innocence, the dead family member, the unimaginable, unimaginable suffering, it can never be put back how it was. We know Jesus says we should forgive And again, hear it, this is scandalous because he doesn't say, well, unless it's this bad or unless it happens this many times. And bear in mind, the people that Jesus is speaking to, they're not just people who, like, didn't get what they wanted on their Christmas Starbucks cup. These are people who have suffered terribly at the hands of the people who have oppressed them. So he knows what he's doing. But then how do we move forward when the debt is so great. L- before I get to that, let me say a few words about what I'm talking about when I say forgiveness because I don't know that we all think the same thing when we think about forgiveness. I want to talk for a second about what it is and what it's not. What we're saying we should do and what we're not saying we should do. Okay, so here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning. It's not saying it's okay. It's not okay. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not going on and living as if it never happened because those who have really suffered know that that is impossible. It's not saying that there are no consequences. It's not excusing by being like, oh, well, it wasn't your fault or you're not responsible. Forgiveness is not Uh, accepting or allowing or trusting that person back into your life again. It's not saying I'm going to keep giving you more chances to hurt me. It's not like, hey, you shot me, but I forgive you, so here's the gun back. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is also not fixing. It's not saying everything's fine now. We can get over We can get back to how things were. Forgiveness doesn't fix the wounds. And forgiveness also is not reconciling. A lesson that I learned in my life is that it takes – one to forgive, and it takes two to reconcile. And you can forgive and maybe not be ready to actually start the process of reconciliation. Hopefully, forgiveness opens a door where that might become possible, but it's not the same as saying, you now have to have a relationship with this person who has hurt you. So here's what I am talking about when I talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a reckoning, and it's a release. It is, I know and I'm naming what you did, and you don't have to make it up to me there's a theologian named Miroslav Volf and he said forgiveness always involves accusation indeed forgiveness is a kind of accusation it is to condemn the deed and accuse the doer just as Jesus said in the passage that comes right before this in Matthew 18 he said if your brother does something against you go and tell him what's up And I wonder if the fact is that maybe some of us has just been way too nice to be good at forgiving. Like we want to just keep covering it up, passing it by, and we think that that's graciousness and forgiving. and And it's not. Like, can't we just have a good time? Let's just have some grace and get back to the Christmas party. No. No, we can't. That's not what forgiveness is. It's not how grace works. We need to stop using grace as another name for our cowardice. It's long been observed in many places Psychology, fairy tales, Harry Potter, that a key to like weakening, diminishing some malevolent force and the power is naming it. When someone has wronged us in a way that creates a debt, as long as it is unnamed, it retains this power over us and the relationship. And so we have to call things what they are if we are going to forgive them and move forward. Forgiveness must involve a recognition of criminality. And then, it's a release. In full light of what has been done, Wolf says that forgiveness cuts the tie of equivalence between the offense and the way we treat the offender. There is not a tie of equivalence. I do not treat you equally to the way that you have offended me. That tie is cut. It's saying you don't, have to repay me, you are now welcomed back into the community of humans, right? Wolf also says that to not forgive is to exclude the offender from the community of humanity as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. OK. So grappling with actually letting it go then. Um, this parable, I think, has two things that maybe go unnoticed that are giving us an opportunity to let go of the debt that is owed to us. Well, the first one probably is noticed, and it's the one about the perspective on our own debt, because uh, it, it is, there is something to this, this idea that the debt, my debt towards God is outrageous, and coming to grips with that, and what I'm owed may be small. And while we have to acknowledge that, like, all debts owed among humans are not equal, okay? So if you have this weird theological idea about sin that, like, all sins are equal, that's garbage. It's not true, okay? So, like, me murdering you is not the same as, like, you stealing my car. Those aren't the same thing. Um, But it is still always true that God is merciful to all of us equally, um, but the second opportunity for this perspective is found in these lines. Verses 26 and 29. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. That's what the servant A, who owed the $10 gajillion dollars, said. Have patience with me, and I will pay you, is what the second servant said to the first as he was being choked out. And so I- in this story, the first servant, in his anger, In his demands against his fellow servant, against his dad, against his ex, against his whoever. When he's choking him out, the first servant is given an opportunity to recognize himself in the face of the one who has wronged him. They're saying the same words. He's saying the identical words back to him. When I'm wounded, when I'm sinned against, when I'm offended, when I'm wronged, I have an opportunity to see my brother in the face of my enemy, my own self in the face of my father. I am invited to remember the paradox that I know about myself, and that is uh, what I know about myself to be, and also, what I can recognize in the one who wronged me, and this is it. The paradox of being human is that I am simultaneously a criminal and a victim. I am both of those things, and so are you. There's a story in the Garden of Eden. You know this story about the snake and the people? And God says to the woman, what have you done? And her answer is two-part. And I think she's sincere. She's sincere. She says, the serpent beguiled me. The serpent deceived me. And I don't think she's shifting blame. I think she's telling the truth. The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. I was deceived, and then I ate. And that is to say, sin is something that we do, and it's also... This thing, as Derek talked about earlier this semester, this power that sets itself against us, and it manifests itself in lots of ways. People grow up in systems of injustice that oppress them, that force them into situations that I don't find myself forced into, and that impacts and affects the decisions that they have available to them to make. Not all of them are always what we would call good, but they're beguiled, they're deceived. There are things in the person hurting me. There are things over that person that I have no control over and that they don't either. My own father, who was mean to us, beyond mean to us sometimes. I was talking to my mom about this a couple years ago. And mom said, you know, Reed, I think your dad was just doing the best he could. And I was like, no. No, he wasn't. And she said, this is what you have to understand about him. Intimate details. Here we go. My father grew up in a military household. My grandfather was an excellent military man, terrible family man. He would make my father and his two brothers submit themselves for inspection. And if they didn't pass, he would beat them. That was the context. That was the serpent beguiling him, deceiving him, taking something from him. So this is why Jesus says at the cross, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because we don't know what we're doing. Which is really hard in a culture that's like, no, you're responsible completely for everything that you do and you alone. That is not true. Where does the responsibility begin? Go backwards to that time when it was taken from you or from your parent. (sighs) It's like this Stockholm syndrome. Do you guys know what Stockholm syndrome is? Right? We've been kidnapped. And we have come to, like, sympathize with our captors. And we start to see the world that way that they do. And we don't fully recognize the extent of the evil that we are doing because we ourselves have been deceived. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It doesn't excuse it, okay? And and it doesn't mean that wrongdoers have no responsibility. But it does mean something for the way that I can see them for the pity that I am able to have for them, for the kind of mercy that I am able to have on them when they say, have patience with me and I will pay you because I was saying that a few minutes ago to somebody else. Have patience with me and I will pay you. And we know we can't pay one another. This recognition of this mutual shared deceivedness, this is what can transform anger for my enemy into compassion for them. So forgiveness, when aided by these perspectives about my debt to God, about my uh, debtor and I sharing something in common, forgiveness then becomes a reckoning and a release, an acknowledgement of criminality and also of humanity, a recognition of humanity. I know what you did. You don't have to make it up to me in full light of your criminality, and also in full light of your humanity, I choose to release you from having to repay me for what you took from me when you wronged me. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to hold you to this eye-for-an-eye bookkeeping system because we know where that goes. It's never really an an eye-for-an-eye, as we already talked about. It just escalates into deeper destruction and more deeper wounding. And forgiveness is the only end to an endless cycle of retribution. Tim Keller says, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss, what was already taken from you, happiness, reputation, opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt Taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out of the other person, it hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Forgiveness is always a costly form of suffering. So when we hear suffering and when we hear death, we are invited, you are invited here to remember God's death death to bookkeeping, to the debt that we owe we are invited to remember that God did not make it disappear with the wave of a wand because the debt has to go somewhere, and so he absorbed it in himself. Mystery of Mysteries absorbed all of our debt, and Mystery of Mysteries ended it with his death, with not exacting revenge, with not paying it back, We are invited to remember that when confronted with someone who has wronged us, we are invited to remember that, but here's the thing, we can choose to forget. It's like there's suffering either way. If you forgive, as Keller's talking about, there's suffering, But, but it's not like you can simply avoid the suffering by forgetting about things. It's not like you can conquer the suffering by holding up a grudge. Like there is still suffering for those of us who don't forgive, and it ends up in this sad, dark irony. We get a picture of it in the parable. It says, in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers, and still he should pay all of his debt. And the word for jailers there is maybe better translated as tormentors. And I think the reality that it's talking about uh, is this not that god like sends you tormentors but that we have our own tormentors when we won't forgive the unforgiving servant is not allowed to just stay released but when he decides to throw his fellow servant into prison then when he finds himself condemned he's only being condemned to the life that he's already chosen Right? Unforgiveness becomes a way of life. And, and when we're in the throes of it, in the throes of unforgiveness, it's like there's this kind of power that we perceive there. Like, oh, I can keep them in a prison if I just am bitter against them, if I resent them, if I hold the debt against them. I can remain bitter. They remain in my debt. They will not be spoken to. They will suffer the loss of the relationship with me. But the truth is, when we're doing that, we're we're building a prison for our own selves to live in. I see this in some people in my family uh, still carrying around pain and holding on to bitterness from years or literally from decades ago. And the anger that at first it felt like this really delicious meal, it ends up becoming something that has just completely eaten them away. And maybe they think that they still have dad in some kind of chokehold when actually they're the ones who are just shackled by bitterness and sadness and anger. And it has real consequences because for as as long as we hold on to not forgiving others, I, I think there's this thing that happens where it gets harder and harder to forgive even our own selves and so, pay what you owe becomes this unmerciful way of life. But then, still, what happens when no one can pay you what they owe you, including yourself? What happens when you rack up this debt in your own mind that you cannot repay and it becomes this self defeating cycle? You could call it torment. And there's a judgment that's self imposed. There he stays. There we stay until we pay the debt. Last thing. Who's dead? I have another problem with this parable. Their servant A stays until he pays the debt, and I have a problem because is God reneging? Is God becoming unmerciful all of a sudden? It's like, well, you don't have to make up this massive debt for me. Wait a minute. Oh, You don't forgive, now I don't forgive you. And I'm going to reinstate your debt, and you have to go to prison now until you can pay back the 164,000 years worth of labor. And by the way, we know that nothing in your financial situation has changed since five minutes ago. And so, you know what? You're not going anywhere, you're not paying anything. I'm sending you back. bother anybody else? Like, Really, God? It's just, uh, that's all it takes? And now you will not forgive? Okay, let's put on our grammar glasses for a second, because there's another way to read this. Syntactic ambiguity. Who is the he? And who is the his? Delivered him to the jailers until, until he should pay all his debt who's the he and who is the his because the way that i always read it was this until he servant a first servant until he finds a way to pay his hundred and sixty-four thousand year debt there he stays in prison but it's just as possible to read it like this until servant a should pay and by the way that word there are like 10 different ways to translate that word not just remuneration until he gives back the 164,000 years, but also as into to let go or to cancel. Until servant A should cover the debt. You could think of it like that. Cover the debt of the other guy. What if that's what's going on? Is God saying that turning someone over to their unmerciful unforgiveness, maybe it's like putting them in a jail cell but giving them a key at the same time. Like maybe it's this perfect stroke of justice and mercy at once because justice, here you are in prison, and mercy because the only way for you to come out is to yourself learn mercy, to show mercy. There you stay until you pay or cover or cancel the debt that they owe you until you learn to do as I did There you stay, and it's totally within your power to do this. I know it's not easy. I know it's suffering, but you have it within you. By my spirit, by my help, you have the capacity to forgive. And so we have to do this hard work of forgiveness because I think that what Jesus is getting at, it's like your your life really depends on this. And so the last thing that I have to say for those of us, uh, when we reach our limit, when you hear me and you're like, there's still no way, like you don't know what they did. You don't know what they took. You don't know how great the debt is. Maybe when we reach the limit, we have to find a way to let the crucifixion be enough. And I say this with all sincerity and empathy in compassion to those in this room who have been severely wounded. And I don't say this flippantly or sentimentally, but maybe at some point you have to let God's death be enough. Not just for you, between you and God, but for you and your enemy as well. It's the only way to resurrection. The crucifixion, fiction it, it reckons not just your debt to God, but our debts between one another. It does that. When we're wounded, when we're hurt, when we're indebted, all we want is just a new life. We want that life that the Bible talks about, you know, that, that no pain, that no tears, that no suffering kind of life. We want this resurrected life, and, and we feel that the wrong that is done to us is, is like a death to us and we just want to be raised again. But but here's the thing. The wrong that is committed to you, against you, the way you are wounded, the way you are offended, the way you are hurt, that is not your death. That's not the death. The death is when you choose to forgive it. That's the death that you willingly enter into. And so when you want a life of being like, uh, uh, just after you've been so sinned against and you want to move on, but you want to try to do that without forgiving, it's like wanting a resurrection without a death. It can't happen. Robert Capon said, the only thing to keep us from the joy of resurrection is the refusal to die. And so when we are invited to forgive, we are being invited into uh, the death Christ we are invited into our death the way that he entered into his and, and that looks like forgiveness to release it to let it go I know what you did you wounded me father forgive them they don't know what they're doing you don't have to make it up to me I forgive you let's pray You were crucified, Lord. You were crucified by real hands, by real flesh and blood. You were tormented, tortured, murdered. In agony, you cried out, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. When the servant is choking out the other servant, he doesn't know what he is doing. given an opportunity to see, Lord, that in our ignorance we have all been deceived. The ones who have most hurt us, they also are like us. This is a hard truth. Who can accept it? Lord, have mercy. We have been so beguiled What we pass on in our deception is abuse, neglect, murder, pain. We pass it on. We don't know what we're doing. Give us the courage to forgive those who do not not know what they are doing. Give those confronted, those doing the wrong, the courage to accept what they have done, to accept their responsibility for it. And Lord, reconcile us to one another through confession, through repentance, through forgiveness. Reconcile us, please. Let us fall on your death and let that be enough. Let's stop keeping books. Let's stop going for vengeance. But 77-fold... Let's lean into the forgiveness that you offer us together.